radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, it's done. The House of Representatives in the last 15 minutes or so has voted to start a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. And I'm so glad to see it. The final vote, all Republicans, 221 voting yes or I, uh, and uh, nay got 212. Uh, from the Democrats. Now, why is that so important? And why is this any different? It is very different from what was done to President Donald Trump. Well, I'm going to tell you about that, because, but I wanted to bring you that late word. It just happened within about the last 15 minutes or so. I think it is completely appropriate to pursue an impeachment inquiry after Joe Biden, because I think Joe Biden has committed not just high crimes and misdemeanors, but the Constitution also mentions bribery as one of the reasons for the impeachment of a federal official. And if Joe Biden has not been bribed by the Biden crime family receiving a grand total that we know of today, $24 million from foreign companies and foreign countries, and a portion of that being held aside for the big guy, for Joe Biden. And how do we know about all that? Bank records, emails, text messages, phone calls. And what happened today? Hunter Biden shows up on Capitol Hill. And he decides to show up on Capitol Hill and then say, I'm not going to give testimony behind closed doors. And I've had people question, well, why should he do it? I don't know. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. did it. A a whole bunch of people gave testimony behind closed doors. But the privileged son of Joe Biden, he's not going to give testimony. He says he will not give a deposition behind closed doors where members of Congress can ask all kinds of questions in preparation for public testimony that Hunter Biden would give in front of Congress, in front of cameras, in front of the public. Now, I want to remind you of something. When there was testimony being demanded about the incident on January 6, 2021, the Capitol riot, Joe Biden was asked, he was already president by that point, uh, he was asked, What should happen to people who defy congressional subpoenas? And Joe Biden voluntarily told reporters they should be criminally prosecuted. Now, in an America where there are clearly two standards of justice, one standard for the J6 defendants, one standard for pro-life people, one standard for people of faith, and then on the other side, a different standard for BLM. Black Lives Matter, a different standard for Antifa, a different standard for Democrats. You have one standard for conservatives and Republicans, an entirely different standard for the Democrats and the liberals. There are two standards in Joe Biden's America. That is a dangerous place to take America. This is a country in which we have inalienable rights. We have a constitution that instructs the government. Constitution is not a grant of rights. It is a protection for you and me from the government taking away your inalienable God-given rights. And what does it say? It says you have to treat everybody equally in the eyes of the law. Now, is Joe Biden going to hold to that standard? Is Joe Biden going to be our reporters? I mean, other than Peter Ducey and a few like that, 
Are reporters going to demand of Joe Biden? Mr. Biden, you said that the J6 uh, people who were demanded uh, issued a subpoena to testify to the Congress. And you said if they defied that subpoena, they should be criminally prosecuted. Will you hold your own son to the same standard? And don't let him dodge. Because when he says, well, you know, I can't say that's his decision. That's not what Joe Biden said when he was asked about people who were issued subpoenas to testify in the events of January 6th, and some of them defied those subpoenas. He said they should be criminally prosecuted. And somebody needs to ask Joe Biden and keep on. I don't care how confused he is, how demented he is. He is clearly not in his right mind. But we should demand the answer from him and say, will you also insist on criminal prosecution of your dear son, Hunter Biden? who very clearly was running the money-grabbing operation for the Biden crime family. He's the guy who went out and set up all these deals in places like Ukraine and Kazakhstan, in Mount Moscow, and in Beijing. And he was bringing in huge amounts of money, tens of millions of dollars that we already know about. Now, I know I've had people call the show. I love naysayers. But if you call the show and say, well, none of that happened. I know what the Democrats are doing today. You had Jerry Nadler, member of Congress, from New York, who said today, he said, there's no evidence Joe Biden did anything wrong. There's no evidence of criminal activity. Really? Well, what was it that uh, Hunter Biden was selling? Well, he was selling his dad's name and his dad's attention and phone calls and personal meetings and all those things. And of course, Joe Biden's very, very infamous demand that Ukraine fire its top prosecutor when the prosecutor was about to investigate what? Burisma the company where Hunter Biden was pulling down an amazing $1 million a year to sit on a board of directors and help a company that he knew nothing about, in an industry he knew nothing about. Now, why was he getting that $1 million? Hunter Biden himself has said that everything he's done in his professional life has been because his dad is Senator Joe Biden or Vice President Joe Biden and now President Joe Biden. So if we've got a bribed American president, not a small bribe, but $24 million in bribes to the Biden crime family. And then you wonder, why is it that Joe Biden is willing to sell out this country to communist China? And I've described the sellout to you before, but it bears repeating. He's trying to turn out the lights, the energy that powers America. He's trying to tell America, don't use those God-given resources like natural gas, like coal, like oil, like nuclear power that we've developed and we used to have access to the uranium in America till Hillary Clinton sold off part of it to Russia or agreed to the sale. She didn't own it, but she benefited from it handsomely. And so did dear old Bill of Chappaqua. He got big bucks as well because of those deals. And what was one of the things Joe Biden did just this year? He locked up a huge amount, a million acres of America, federal land that has some of the best uranium deposits on it in the world. And what did he do? He turned it into a national monument, the one near the Grand Canyon, but not the Grand Canyon National Park. And there were people who were pleased by this. But to lock up all those resources and then tell Americans, you're not going to have oil. You're not going to have natural gas. You're not going to have nuclear. You're not going to have any of that. You're going to have wind, wind power bought from China. You're going to have solar panels bought from China. And I have a feeling that now that the American auto companies have actually figured things out, they've figured out that they lose tens of thousands of dollars every time they sell an electric vehicle car. You know, when they sell one, 
And yesterday you heard from one of the experts, $60,000 is what Ford Motor Company loses every time it sells an EV. Why? Because the car costs more money to make than you can sell it for. So when that happens, and the car companies do, as Ford Motor did yesterday, announce that, well, starting next year, we're cutting production of our signature electric pickup truck, the Ford F-150 Lightning. You know what Joe Biden's going to do? He's going to say, we just have to bring them in from China, because boy, did that China pay off, pay off, not for Americans, not for the best interests of this great country, but for the Biden crime family. Back in a moment, the impeachment inquiry has been voted in 221 to 212, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Someone has a plan for illegal aliens. Back in the White House, I will terminate every open borders policy of the Biden administration and begin the largest deportation operation in American history. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you with me. And if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, you'll go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And I'm going to turn to Jim Burling who's vice president at the Pacific Legal Foundation, because it seems there's really bad news for Joe Biden. Jim, I just told my audience that within the last half hour or so, uh, the Congress, the House at least, has approved an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. And at the same time, there's been a fairly major uh, ruling that has to do with Donald Trump. Welcome back, by the way, Jim. Hey, nice to be back with you. So now the Supreme Court is going to review an appeal brought uh, by a man who was charged with obstructing an official proceeding on January 6th, so part of the J6 uh, incident. Uh, and that could be a game changer for Donald Trump. Would you mind explaining that to my audience and why that is? Yeah, so under the Insurrection Act, which many of these people have been charged with, you get a maximum of 10 years. Well, Trump has been charged. Well, the fact is that they couldn't find enough time to go against them. So they went instead to the Sarbox. Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which was the act that was put in place after Enron, after the Enron scandal, and it prohibits people from destroying evidence. Now, the, Enron, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, it basically amended what was previously known as a tampering with a witness, victim, primer, informant act. And it begins by saying it's a crime, federal crime to kill a witness. And then Sarbanes-Oxley it amended that to say that if you tamper with evidence, it's also a crime. So now you're asking, what evidence are we talking about that got tampered with? Yeah. Well, it has two parts to it. One says, well, you can't tamper with evidence that's part of any official proceeding. And the next part says, or otherwise obstruct that proceeding. And does that include tampering with evidence or not? And that's the question before the court. And that's the case of court took up today because the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, that has 20-year penalty, 20 years potential jail time for violating that. So the prosecutors are gung-ho about this, and this is what they have charged all the January 6th defendants with, and what they have charged Donald Trump in the case out of Washington, D.C. with. 
uh, violations of Sarbanes actually, actually because he allegedly was obstructing an official proceeding, but that has nothing to do with any evidence at issue at the court because people were not destroying any evidence. It wasn't that kind of proceeding, and it certainly wasn't sort of people shredding evidence in light of a financial crime committed by a large corporation, which is what Sarbanes-Oxley was all about. So this is a case where the prosecutors have gotten incredibly creative against both Donald Trump and the January 6th folks. Well, and and if they were to be given a yes by the Supreme Court, then every time somebody protests at the Capitol, uh, you know, and the protest goes inside the building. It doesn't happen all that often, but we've seen some in the in the last few weeks involving Palestine protesters who've decided to go into congressional hearing rooms or go into the Capitol. Uh, I mean, if they open this door, do they know what's behind that door? Well, I think that's a huge question, because, look, <laughs> during the hearings for the very Supreme Court justices, Justice Kavanaugh and others in recent years, People have interrupted the proceedings by standing up in the galley and shouting things, and they've yep. been hauled off. But if you're going to take Sarbanes-Oxley to something, to that sort of officially messing with a proceeding, you could get 20 years in federal prison for doing that. And, and that's just absurd. Previously, the Department of Justice used the same act to try to go after a fisherman because he allegedly threw away undersized fish when he was about to be inspected. And the Department of Justice said, well, those undersized fish are actually an official record, which is subject to a violation under the Sarban. Sarban- he's, he's, he's tampering and with evidence by throwing away undersized ridiculous. fish. Yeah, I mean, that's not a record in any. That's not the sort of thing that Enron was shredding. They weren't shredding. They were, they were tossing up fish. They were tossing up records. So the Department of Justice got rightly struck, sh- shot down by that one by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court made no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It said, you, that's, that's well beyond what Congress intended when it passed Sarbanes-Oxley. And I think the same thing is going on here. Uh, yes, what those rioters may have done was criminally wrong in many cases, but they weren't violating Sarbanes-Oxley because they weren't interfering with any evidence as part of this official proceeding. No, and, and this, because it bears on Trump's case, um, do you think the Supreme Court can just look at it in isolation and say, does this law actually cover any time somebody interrupts something that the, 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 uh, the Congress, in this case, is doing? Because they know that it'll be used, uh, it'll be used against Trump, it'll be used against the J6 defendants, but arguably it could be used against almost any protest group that comes in and interrupts. And I remember those hearings, watching them, where people would stand up and they'd make a big fuss and it would shut things down for five or ten minutes and they'd shuffle them off out of the out of the room and then go on as before. But it was true that they had actually obstructed an official proceeding if that's what the law meant. Do you see, it sounds like you're suggesting that the Supreme Court has already, at least on other cases, decided, no, that's not what the law means. Yeah, they decided that in the 2015 undersized fish case. And looking at this, they can't help but understand what's going on. Because, look, they, they're looking at another case that was directly from Donald Trump that he brought earlier this week about whether the uh, double jeopardy clause applies to the impeachment clause. And they're clearly aware of what's going on. And so I think the justices are going to look at the case. They're going to look at the language of Sarbanes-Oxley. 
and they're going to come up with a reasoned decision. Now, the trial court tossed the, you know, said you can't bring this Sarbanes-Oxley against Donald Trump. Uh, the Court of Appeal in the uh, Fisher case, the one for the rioter, uh, the Court of Appeal in a two-to-one decision said you can bring it over a strong dissent, and that's the case the Supreme Court took up today. All right, and when is this the kind of case that we're going to have to wait until June of next year to get a decision, or does the Supreme Court understand the necessity of delivering some kind of a decision between now and their usual, here are all the big ones in June? Yeah, I think two things. I don't think it's going to be that hard of a case for the Supreme Court to decide, despite the fact they got two uh, appellate court justices on their side below. I really think it's pretty darn obvious that this isn't that difficult to decide. The language is pretty clear. And so it's not going to take them that long to decide this case, unlike a case like an abortion case where they wait till the very last day. And they're going to be hearing this case relatively soon, most likely. Uh, early in next year. So, and they and they do realize, as you said, the stakes in this case are huge. That's why they agreed to hear the immunity case, the double jeopardy case, or to decide whether to take it or not in a very uh, quick time frame. And I think they realize what's at stake here. We got an election coming up. We have the country being torn apart. I, I think we need to get this done and over with and behind us. And I think the court understands that. I'm talking to Jim Burling from the Pacific Legal Foundation. The last thing is just in the case that they that that they want to proceed with against Trump, saying he interfered, uh, he it was engaged in a conspiracy to object an official proceeding. Are they talking about the speech he gave that day? Or are they talking about phone calls to governors and, and secretaries of state? What what specific acts did he allegedly commit that constitute ob- obstruction of an official proceeding? If you read the indictment, they're talking about everything he said from Election Day forward. <laughs> uh, they're talking about his, his discussions with the secretaries of state, his speeches, pretty much everything is part of this conspiracy to defraud the United States, this conspiracy to take away people's rights, and this conspiracy to violate the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. So basically, they want to punish him for engaging in free speech that nobody, not even the FBI, can say that actually inspired anybody to change anything along the way. Jim, it's going to be interesting to see what the Supreme Court decides. Thank you so much. That's Jim Burling, Vice President of Legal Affairs for the Pacific Legal Foundation. Jim, I appreciate the time. Coming up in just a moment, while the president's son tries to escape justice by breaking gun laws already on the books, Joe Biden is pushing states to enforce even more bureaucracy on your Second Amendment rights. We'll get to that and your phone calls coming up next on The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. people with disabilities a message from Lars I'd like to apologize to anyone I've not offended yet please be patient I'll get to you shortly who's next this is the Lars Larson show welcome back to the Lars Larson show it's a pleasure to be with you and while Hunter Biden is still charged with three felony crimes involving guns his dear old daddy is trying to apply even more restrictions on the 
rights of law-abiding citizens in America. Amazing, isn't it? I'll get into the details of that in just a moment. First, I want to get to a few of your calls. If you want to join our best conversation in talk journalism, it happens right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Of course, naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find a brand new question question every day. Today's question, do you believe Hunter Biden when he says that Papa Joe had no ties to his business deals? I would say no. I don't believe him one little bit. But that's what Hunter Biden said on Capitol Hill today. My father was not financially involved in my business. I think that's just another big fat lie from the Biden crime family that has so many lies to its credit already. You can find the Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. And it's brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. Join a great conservative group I've been a member of for years. AMAC.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better. Better for you and better for America. Let's go first to Dennis. Uh, Dennis, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Thank you. Um, I believe, I agree with uh, Speaker Mike Johnson that he says there no uh, further uh, funding to Ukraine. I believe I it's too. a fraud. Yep. It, uh, I mean, we've already spent over in excess of $100 billion on uh, Ukraine, and we haven't secured the border. And I, I would hope that even after we secure the border, if we secure the border with funds and manpower, etc., we will not spend any dime, any penny on Ukraine unless there's, uh, there's going to be an audit or oversight for all the money, the funds that the United States has already donated to Ukraine, and not just in the future, but in the past, like all the uh, weapons, uh, etc., and so forth that we've already donated. I want any accountability. We're the taxpayers of America, and instead of being America first, we're being America last. I'm well, I, I understand what you say you want, and I don't disagree with you at all, Dennis, but let me ask you a question. If you want an audit of where the money actually went in Ukraine, where do you suppose you'd end up getting that audit? Wouldn't it be from the Ukrainian, Ukrainian government? Uh, actually, no. I think we should have the accounting here in the United States. Well, no, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. But Dennis, money. Dennis, monies have been, I mean, we've detailed some of this over the last, it's now not quite two years since the war began. They've sent money to fund schools. They've sent money to fund agriculture. Some of the money got spent giving giant raises, about 75% raises to members of the Ukrainian parliament. Uh, there's been money that's been sent for a thousand different purposes in Ukraine. How would you do the accounting here? Because all you're going to get, you know, let me compare it to something kind of pedestrian, Dennis. Let's say you, uh, you order from Grubhub. You order two sandwiches, two salads, and two milkshakes, all right? And the kid, okay. a young man or woman, shows up, and he has one salad, one milkshake, and three hamburgers, and you say, that's not what I ordered. And he looks at the piece of paper on the bag and says, it says right here, this is what you ordered. And you say, no, that's not what I ordered. So when you send a lot of money, to, I know people are going to find that a strange comparison, but imagine this. The Congress votes and says, we're going to send money to Ukraine. And they're going to spend all of it on perfectly legitimate expenses. So we have a list of what we sent them the money for. 
Is there any confidence at this end that if you put all those things on a list here and then send tens of billions of dollars to a notoriously corrupt country, that the money actually got spent on the things you sent it for? So that's even more, more scary, because now, so now I would demand that Speaker Johnson will send zero cent, zero penny towards Ukraine, yep. because we can't have any audit or accounting. I agree, so, I agree, because the only meaningful audit would be to somehow drill into the Ukrainian government to where the money went, and then you'd have to determine that where it says even in their books, if it says in their books, yep, we spent all of this on food for the needy. In other words, make a list of all the most legitimate causes you could think of. We bought uh, new new diapers for babies. We bought new clothing for school kids. We bought books for school kids, and they wrote it all down on a piece of paper. Dennis, would you believe that set of books, even if you found that set of books in Ukraine, any more than you'd believe the books of any criminal organization in America? Of course not. And I think that Burisma and Hunter Biden had a large part of it in yep. a cover-up. And... Well, and, and here's the logical question I've been asking now since about March or April, when it became March or April of last year, when it became clear that we we're going to start shoveling money in the direction of Ukraine. And I said to people, we everybody I've ever talked to from Ukraine, everybody I've ever interviewed, both people who are experts on Ukraine and people from Ukraine, and you ask them, is your country just rife with corruption? And they say, of course it is. We have oligarchs who are billionaires because they're really good at cheating the system. So I ask the logical question, if you send tens of billions of dollars into a war, in a country that we have no no real ability to supervise, what is the likelihood that all those people, the oligarchs and the less than billionaires who, who've made all their money from the same kind of corruption in Ukraine will not try to put their hands on a big chunk of that money? I think the, the chance is almost zero. They're, of course they are. You're sending a bunch of money into a place that's corrupt, filled with people who run the country who are corrupt. And then you say, but they won't take any U.S. money because we sent it there to feed widows and orphans or to fund schools or to pay for agriculture or to or send bombs and bullets. And we sent a certain number of bombs and bullets as well, and we still are. So, but, but could you imagine sending all that money into a place that's run by corruption and then saying, but none of the money America sends will end up in corrupt hands? There's almost zero chance of that, isn't there? Absolutely. And uh, and uh, it was fishy ever since uh, you know I believe that the Euro Maidan uh, um, oh the revolution, Maidan revolution uh, yep well yeah, you know who a, you know who engineered okay, that Dennis that was I I highly recommend a documentary that was done by uh, by Oliver Stone it's called Ukraine on Fire it's now I think it's seven or eight years old but he talks about the Maidan or Maidan uh, revolution. And about who was pushing it? It was the Obama administration, and so they did it. The CIA. Well, well, right, but that's—I mean—the CIA at that time was part of the Obama administration, and they were doing it for the same things that have gotten America in trouble for a long, long time. We say, "Here's Ukraine. It sits between Western Europe and Russia," and and we say, "Is the is the government there friendly to the United States?" You say, "No, they're friendly to Russia." And they had a president who was friendly to Russia. And Obama and his crowd, including uh, Virginia or uh, Victoria Newland, 
who's still, you know, floating around out there connected to the government of Joe Biden. And they said, we want the government of Ukraine to be a Western friendly government. We want them to do what what the West once done. And uh, and the current president wants uh, to, to serve the needs of Vladimir Putin. And so we were fighting over this country, but in diplomatic terms. And so they engineered a revolution that caused the illegal ouster of the Russia-friendly president and the replacement of the Russia-friendly president with a president friendly to the West. And by, you know, I don't think by accident, friendly to Joe Biden, where Joe Biden could walk in and say, you're going to do what I tell you to do, or you're not getting the billion dollars from America. And all of a sudden, Joe Biden and the Biden crime family, they were off to the races. Back in a moment, you've got the Lars Larson Show. we got to talk about a Satan temple being set up in one Tennessee elementary school. Tell you something, when it comes to indoctrination, what could be more crazy than establishing a satanic temple after school program, uh, not just inappropriate, but ugly and uh, a matter of indoctrination of kids. And where is it happening? In one of the states I would have least expected it from, the great state of Tennessee, which is also where our friend Ben Dieter hails from. He's a reporter at our great affiliate station, Todd Starn Station, the mighty 990 KWAM in Memphis, Tennessee. Ben, welcome back. Lars, it's great to be with you again, and you're right. This one, I did not have this on my bingo card this year. <laughs> you would have expected, wouldn't you have expected this kind of craziness from California or or maybe New York or or even Minnesota? But how in the world does a great, sensible state like Tennessee tolerate this stuff? It's the Bible Belt, you know. I, and maybe that's why they're here. But I, I was shocked to see this rearing its ugly head here in the Mid-South. And you have to understand, and and you cover the crime facing all cities that are run by progressives. But you know here in Memphis, we're dealing with our own crime problem. And to think that you're going to invite Lucifer when we already have all of these demons running around this city? No. No, it it makes no sense. So so would you mind just, what is the town of Cordova? I mean, I know most of the bigger towns in Memphis, but I I don't know. Where's Cordova and where is Chimney Rock Elementary School? Well, it's a suburb right outside of city limits. It is a quaint area. I, I would say a healthy mix. Now, this elementary school where this controversy is brewing is, I would say, a majority minority school district. Um, really, that is kind of the demographic of the city of Memphis. But in this case, a lot of these elementary kids, their parents, their grandparents are, are, are black Memphians, which I think is very interesting to see how animated and angry as we all should be <laughs> over Satan moving in. I didn't even know the, the, the term of art Memphian. I'm going to have to remember that. That's kind of a, a cool way of describing people from Memphis. But that's what I would have guessed. I mean, Ben, you can get in trouble by, by following stereotypes and generalities. But I've always found that the, the, the black people that I know tend to be church-going, Bible-loving, God-fearing people. I, I just can't imagine them tolerating this stuff. Well, that's what is encouraging, if there's any silver line to this story. You know, 
what the satanic temple and the after school Satan club, the Satanist coming to town has have alleged is that there are parents at Chimney Rock, Lars, that sent the invite first. Well, I've covered this story since it broke yesterday. And that is that must be the extreme minority, the outliers, because they aren't having it. As a matter of fact, how upset these parents, these these black parents and grandparents, they're starting to sound like members of our Moms for Liberty chapter here. It's one thing. They were okay with maybe the masking up of the kids, even maybe everybody learning the pronouns, but Lucifer teaching their kids the ABCs. It was a bridge too far. So I'm talking to Ben Dieter, who's a reporter at our great affiliate in in Memphis, which is the Mighty 990 KWAM, again, home of uh, Todd Starnes and other great people like Ben Dieter. But Ben... Here's the thing I, uh, that first occurred to me, and I couldn't find it in any of the reporting that was being done about the after-school Satan Club coming to Chimney Rock Elementary in Cordova. If you're going to set up an after-school club, you've got to have somebody who sponsors it. or, or I mean, you have to go to the school and say, we want to have this activity. Doesn't that have to involve some parents and some students? And does this one? Well, well, we'll learn more when it is open to the public. I guess we'll say that it is expected to be available to children as a quote-unquote resource the first week of January. So we'll see if they can actually fill up their rows of, of chairs there in the, in the rental facility where this is all happening. You know, when I looked into the Satanic Temple, and though they point out that they're a non-theistic religion, they view Satan as some literary figure who represents some metaphor, they go on. It's those people, Lars. And they are behind so many different lawsuits across this country. And when you dig into who these people are, I don't see where kids are their priorities. Now, I do see priorities involving trans rights critical race theory, abortion rights. And so I'm just trying to figure out why target an elementary school right here in the well, Bible Belt. I- instead of calling it a Satan club, then why it sounds like a Democrat club. Why don't they just call it the local Democrat club? If they're going to say we believe in abortion, we believe in Satan, we're godless pagans, that describes the Democrat Party. I mean, I just, I looked at this yeah. and I thought, hold, hold on a second, this, what parents would say, uh, yes, my child really wants there to be a Satan club. And to call him a literary figure, I know you know this one, Ben. What's the single most published book in the world and the original book that makes any reference to this character, Satan? The Bible, which is all but banned in these schools. <laughs> so, you know? So he's just a literary figure. I mean, I understand Hollywood is rife with Satan. Uh, books are filled with yeah. I mean, if, if I went on Amazon and said, I want all the books that, that, are, that are centered around a story about Satan, uh, I know I can find the Bible, but I know I can find a whole bunch of other books, popular fiction and all the rest of that nonsense. But, but the Bible is the original place, so how in the world can they suggest that it's just a literary figure, like they're having a, a Shakespeare uh, club or a, a Edgar Allan Poe club or something like that? Yeah, and I think you pointed out this is an agenda. I think it's a pretty brilliant one. There was a pastor. So to give you a quick behind the scenes, there was a just there was just a big press conference with school district officials here, and you have the superintendent, the school board, and then behind the board, you had over thirty pastors that showed up. It was pretty powerful, and you had one preacher up there. He's 
pretty popular. He said, this is Satan personified. I mean, think about it. Using the Constitution, the First Amendment, against an elementary school. That's a pretty devious trick to get a big old lawsuit and a whole lot of money. Well, and if they're not going to depend on being able to say this is part of our faith, then all they're offering is a book club by their own admission. So is that allowed? Is anybody allowed to show up at Chimney Rock Elementary or any other elementary uh, that has little Memphian children in it and say, I'd like to have a club and we can we can talk about the books of Robert Heinlein, who's one of my favorites, but but he didn't write about Satan a lot. Is that open to anybody? Well, I think what the conversation moving forward is going to look like for a lot of these schools is they're going to have to really make a decision about what a 501c3, and you hear this a lot, what is recognized by the IRS and what gets platformed by these schools. They're in a pinch right now because they have a good news club. That is the pro-Christian club. And they say, listen, we have nonprofit organizations. They seek to use our facilities. So we have to grant equal access under the law. So I think you're seeing this struggle where, on one hand, they're trying to hold the hands of parents and students here in the Mid-South. On the other hand, try to also hold the Constitution in the other. Unbelievable. That's Ben Dieter from K-1. The Lars Larson Show. Looking for a new way... It's going to happen. Stand by playback. And now, Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your phone calls and emails. It's a Wednesday. And if you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's always here at 866-HEY-LARS. I got a question for you. There was a mob that stormed the Senate building, the Senate uh, chambers, on Monday, Monday of this week. It's now Wednesday. It's been two days ago. And the question is whether or not they are going to get the same kind of adverse treatment that the defendants from the January 6, 2021 incident got almost three years ago. I think the answer pretty confidently is no. There are two standards of justice in the United States these days under the Biden administration, and they are very, very different depending on whether or not you're a conservative or a liberal, whether or not you stand up for issues and policies that the Biden administration agrees with or issues and policies that the Biden White House disagrees with. So will the mob who stormed the Senate building on Monday get the January 6th treatment? I want to dig into some of the details of that in just a moment. First, welcome to the program. And if you want to sound off, it's the best conversation in talk journalism. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Naysayers always go to the head of the line at the Lars Larson Show. You can also email talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out our Instagram feed. And then, of course, if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, we try to make that interesting. A brand new question every day from the news of the day. Do you believe that Hunter Biden, do you believe Hunter Biden when he says that his dad, Joe Biden, has no ties whatsoever to his business deals? 
Now, that's the fiction that I believe has been maintained by Joe Biden and by Hunter Biden as well uh, for the last several years, going all the way back to Joe Biden's presidential campaign in which he was, well, he was confronted directly by Donald Trump, who said, you and your family have been making money from China and you've made money from China. And Joe Biden denied it. And he denied that any of his family had made money from China. Well, now we know because of banking records and other things dug out by the House Oversight Committee, the Biden crime family made literally millions of dollars from communist China. So when you hear that Hunter Biden showed up on Capitol Hill today, he was subpoenaed to make himself available for a uh, a behind closed doors interview, which was going to be on the record. But Hunter Biden decided to defy that subpoena in a way that his dad has said, ought to be criminally prosecuted for everybody except Hunter Biden. He said on Capitol Hill to reporters, he decided to kind of stage a dog and pony show. He said, quote, my father was not financially involved in my business. After all, it's about the only line he can actually take, because if he admits my dad showed up at meetings with my business partners, my dad got on conference calls with my business partners, My dad was used as a lever to leverage millions of dollars from communist China. If Hunter Biden were to admit that, if he submitted to questioning as he's been subpoenaed to do, and he admits, yeah, dad was in for the deal, there was 10% for the big guy. If he admits what all of us already know, Joe Biden is over, Hunter Biden's going to prison, and the Democrat Party is going to be tied to an albatross, and his name is Joseph R. Biden. So... Do you believe Hunter Biden when he says that Papa Joe had no ties to his business deals? I do not. I would answer the question, no. You can answer any way you like. We put up a brand new question at Lars Larson Show on X or Twitter. We also put it on our website at LarsLarson.com. It's always brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined the group years and years ago. You can too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Now, yesterday, I asked you about what the new president of Argentina has been doing, and I absolutely love it. He is a conservative. He is a populist. He's got a country that's in deep financial straits. Kind of sounds like the United States, doesn't it? Except the president of Argentina promised during his campaign, I will cut the number of government agencies. They call them ministries in Argentina. I'm going to cut that number in half. So I asked you yesterday, should America cut its government agencies in half at the federal level as Argentina's new president has? 96% of you said yes to that great idea, and I did as well. Only 4% of you said no to that idea. Glad to have you with me and always glad to take your calls. A shout out to our friends in West Plains, Missouri, just up the road from Branson, who listen to Great Talk Radio every day, all day on KWPM. That's AM 1450. And you can find my show there Monday through Friday as well. I wanted to mention a couple of other stories quickly. And if you want to jump in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. Number one. The Supreme Court announced today that it's going to take up a case involving that abortion pill. It's called mifeprestone. We've talked about it on the air. It is the way, the route to abortion for about 50% of the roughly 1 million abortions that are committed every year in America. A pill. 
And the Biden administration wanted to dramatically expand access to that pill. But the question that's being considered, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, thank God, uh, with the Dobbs case. And mifeprestone is used to end a pregnancy, they say, in the first 10 weeks. Now, it was approved about 24 years ago. And about half of all abortions nationwide are using this pill, not surgery, not going in for a physical abortion. It's also used to help manage miscarriages as well. And the Supreme Court has to decide, was that approval legitimate? And I've told you reasons why it was not legitimate. And not only that, but when the FDA first approved mifeprestone in 2000, so about 20, now almost 24 years ago, uh, the FDA said it can be used up to seven weeks into pregnancy. Well, of course, that required that a young woman seeking a chemical abortion, which is what mifeprestone is, would have to go to a doctor. She'd be checked because mifeprestone can be very dangerous. In fact, they've had young ladies die because they take mifeprestone, and that should be a concern for the FDA. And yet, not only did the FDA not limit the access, but now here's what the Biden administration wants to do. They want to say, no, you can't just use it for seven weeks. You can use it up to 10 weeks into the pregnancy. And secondly, they would like people to be able to get this pill online or by phone without the young lady seeing a doctor. Can you imagine the dangers that are posed? Because a young lady who's anxious to terminate a pregnancy, it's a sad thing that there are young ladies who want to do that, but they do. If they're, if she's told, well, you can only use this up to 10 weeks into your gestation, she might just say, well, I want to end this pregnancy. I, I don't want to do an in-person physical abortion. So even though it's been 12 weeks, I'll go ahead and use mifeprestone. That poses real dangers to young ladies who are pregnant. And, of course, it's fatal for the unborn baby inside of her. And the Biden administration, they want to do everything they can to make abortion as accessible as possible for anybody, for any reason. Uh, no limitations. They've never been willing to talk about limitations at all. So the question is, uh, is the Supreme Court going to decide that one in favor of life or in favor of death? Back in a moment, we'll talk about the Supreme Court and looking at the abortion bill, just that subject, with Reverend James Harden. He's next on The Lars Larson Show. Always ask Lars if he wants to run for public office, like president. Do you know how much power I'd have to give up to be president? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you with me. And if you want to join the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. Uh, that's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I want to wish a very Merry Christmas. This is my first Merry Christmas to Reverend James Harden, CEO of Compass Care Pregnancy Service services. Reverend, good to have you back. Merry Christmas to you, Lars. Thanks for having me. I'm hoping, uh, thank you for that. Uh, we're always glad for your time, but I'm really hoping that this case, the Supreme Court announced that it's going to take up involving mifeprestone, this abortion pill, uh, is, is going to lead to a, a Christmas present, 
uh, probably won't come by the 25th of December. Uh, but I hope the Supreme Court can give us the right decision on this. I'd like you to weigh in on what this represents in America right now. Well, this is this case uh, is huge. It's actually bigger than Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, the case that overturned Roe versus Wade. And the reason why is because chemical abortion is what it's about. And chemical abortion represents over 60 percent, six zero percent of all abortions in America right now. <clears throat> and if if the court does what I believe they're going to do and uh, side with the lower court Texas ruling and tell the FDA to go back to the drawing board and do their job, which they didn't do the first time, and, and, and go through the safety and efficacy process, take this drug through the safety and efficacy process, it'll take the drug off the market, okay? And that will cut abortion, the abortion industry, in half overnight and give tens of thousands of babies the gift of a birthday. Well, and in fact, it won't just, I mean, they, they could go back, and I think if they got it done during the Biden administration, they might be able to get it back on the market. But everything, Reverend, that I've heard about mifeprestone is that it kills some young women uh, and, and because it's given to them and either their pregnancy has been going on longer than they thought it was. Uh, a, a lot of different details that apparently the FDA ignored in 2000 when they said, OK, it's, right. it's, it's OK out to seven weeks. And then the Biden administration said, let's push it out to 10 and then let's make mm -hmm. it available online, if possible, where a young lady might not even physically see a doctor or have the doctor say, now you've got contraindications. This this would actually be dangerous to you. Um, and she takes it out of the, out of view of a uh, of a medical professional. And sometimes they end up dead. Am I overstating that? No, you're not overstating at all. In fact, that's what uh, the the physicians were claiming when they brought the suit originally in Texas. That's exactly what they were saying, is that <clears throat> women were dying. Uh, women, a recent study shows that one in 10 women who begin the chemical abortion process wind up in the emergency room. It's so dangerous it causes sepsis, hemorrhaging, uh, pelvic inflammatory disease, which causes internal scarring, future ectopic pregnancies, increases the risk of, of breast cancer by 44%. This is why the chemical abortion drug mifepristone has been dubbed the chemical coat hanger. It is just that bad. And yet for the Biden administration and for the abortion true believers, you're not one, I'm not one. But for them, they see it as, oh, we'll make abortion so easy, even if it costs some young ladies their lives and costs all of the babies their lives, that we'll be able to just be abortion on demand. I mean, you don't have to go to a clinic, don't have to see a doctor, get the pill in the mail, take it. Some of you will die. Some of you will end up in the emergency room, but we'll kill a whole lot more babies. That's what Biden and his people want, right? That's exactly what they want. The abortion industry, it's a billion-dollar business complex that gets politicians reelected. Politicians like Biden and Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and all the rest, New York Governor Hochul and Gavin Newsom. The, the, the abortion industry is, is their pet industry because it gives them power, power to decide who lives and who dies. And, and that is absolute power. So, you know, you're, you're right 100 percent. This, this, this particular decision, um, <clears throat> I think could be, you know, uh, my hope is that, that you've got the U.S. Marshals protecting the Supreme Court justices, because the last time something this big uh, went to the Supreme Court, uh, you had death threats going out. You had uh, one of the Supreme Court justices had a, an assassination attempt on his life. Uh, you had fire bombings. Of course, one of our organizations was firebombed in Buffalo. Um, you know, so th this is the kind of thing that basically stirs up 
uh, pro-abortion Antifa violence as a, as a recruitment methodology for direct action targets. By the way, there's an awful lot of attention paid to the cost of pharmaceuticals, and I thought I'd throw this in because I want your interpretation of this. The actual cost of mifepristone is around 80 bucks, but apparently if you go to Planned Parenthood, the biggest abortion provider in America, and I think the biggest in the world, maybe not, there may be some countries like Russia that do more of them, they charge $580 for it, and if you get it anywhere else, it's around $800. So it sounds like even with the using a chemical to perform the abortion, all of a sudden Planned Parenthood will no longer have the cost of all those clinics and not nearly as many doctors or facilities or anything else, but they'll still be making bank and they'll still be going to the Congress saying, you've got to fund Planned Parenthood because we're good for women. Am I, am I wrong about that? Because it sounds like this is the one place where the Democrats don't complain about the cost of pharmaceuticals. <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, chemical abortion is being uh, delivered to women via mail, unethically, of course. It's, it's illegal, according to the Comstock Act, to send these drugs in the mail, but it's happening every day. Attorney General Merrick Garland refuses to enforce the law. But it's cheaper to get it via mail. Planned Parenthood, of course, marks it up, you know, I don't know how many times. Uh, you're right, $580, uh, for instance. But you've got states like New York, New York City, that are stockpiling these drugs so they can give it away for free to women. For free? Uh, you know. For free. Uh, and, and furthermore, New York Governor Hochul and other, other, uh, governors like the governor in Oregon, uh, and, and California, they want to stockpile misoprostol. Now, misoprostol, they're, they're assuming that, that, that the Supreme Court will in fact, uh, overturn the FDA's approval of misopristone, the dangerous chemical abortion drug. And if that's the case, they want to move to misoprostol only, which, which causes, the only thing it does is cause uterine contractions. And the World Health Organization is recommending that women take these drugs for, to abort at home, uh, you know, all the way through pregnancy. Extremely oh, dangerous to the well, women. Hold on, hold on. Reverend, so that means if all you do is cause the woman's body to begin contractions, then you're taking a thoroughly immature baby inside that woman and just having the woman's body instructed chemically, kick this thing out, kick this baby yeah. out. And uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not diminishing the baby. The baby's a baby to me. It's a lump of tissue to the Democrat Party and the liberals. But they're saying kick it out. And what? The baby ends up suffocating when it's born uh, or, or is born and then what? lingers for a few hours and they set it aside in a basin till it dies. I mean, that 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 just Terrible sounds horrific. Thing. It is horrific and terrible things happen. And oftentimes women are birthing live babies. They don't know what to do with them. The baby ends up dying or they end up killing the baby. I'm not kidding you. It, it turns every woman's home, every dorm room, every bathroom into an abortion clinic. And it's awful. It's, 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 it's beyond unethical. It's barbaric. Okay. This is, this is the face of the abortion industry. And this is exactly what Democrats want. They, they are willing to sacrifice women's reproductive health on the altar of abortion and power. How many abortions, is it, how, many, how many babies is it okay to kill in order to get or, or maintain political power? That's the kind of question barbarians ask. Our job and the government's job is to protect all people equally under the law, 14th Amendment. And that, that includes from fertilization to natural death. This, this is something that I think, is, I, I pray that the Supreme Court uh, does their job, and I think they will, because the only reason they would pick a case up like this is if because uh, the, the Fifth Circuit actually moderated uh, the, the Texas court ruling, which is very conservative, basically outlawing mifepristone. 
to protect women and to protect babies, which is their job. And, and the, the Fifth Circuit modified that and allowed Mr. Pristone to stay on the market. The Supreme Court came along and said, oh, wait a second. Uh, let, let's just stay this until we can go through the process. And the only reason I believe they picked this up is so that they can go back to and, and, and actually create a more conservative, uh, more comprehensive ruling. Uh, that would be consistent with the Texas ruling. That well, I think you're right about the protection for the court, because if they exploded after Dobbs, this one is, yeah. is going to set them on fire. Reverend Harden, thanks for what you do at Compass Care Pregnancy Services. By the way, folks, Compass Care just simply tells young ladies, you don't have to kill that baby. There's an adoptive family that loves it. You could have the baby and decide to keep the baby and love it and raise it. That's what Reverend Jim Harden and Compass Care does. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Kids. Donald Trump with a warning to Hamas at the Republican Jewish Coalition Conference. If you spill a drop of American blood, we will spill a gallon of yours. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if I get time this segment, I want to talk about the president of one of America's most prestigious colleges. And is she not just anti-Semitic, but is she a major league plagiarist as well? We'll get into the details of that in a moment. Glad to have you with me. And if you want to jump into the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Let me go first to Joy in California. Hey, Joy, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Just a couple of responses to the conversation you just had. Um, um, you look at um, Americans, two-thirds probably as an average support abortion being available in the first trimester. So you've got that. And then if you look at the states where they're so highly regulated against having abortions, such as Idaho, and I used to live right next to Idaho, they're losing their OBGYN. And so I think because they aren't able to face the liabilities um, or afford the insurance and everything else because of the liabilities of of um, somehow crossing the law. And so I think about the chemical abortions, I think that's being pushed by the the policies of the right. Um, Well, hold on a second, Joy. This all didn't happen just since Dobbs. The chemical abortions have been increasing in number. I had a number that was around 50%. James Harden just told me it's closer to 60%. You know why they've gone to chemical abortions. It's not because evil conservatives in Ohio have made tough limits on abortion. They've done it because it's easier. It's easier to do it. It's cheaper to do it than a conventional abortion. And that's the the draw and the reason why over the last uh, 20, well, since 2000, when they approved Mifeprestone, the number of chemical abortions has gone up. 
It's cheaper, it's easier, it's more readily available. And now the Biden administration wants to effectively put an awful lot of women's lives at risk by saying, yeah, you want to get it through the mail, you want to get it uh, online, you don't have to see a doctor or anything like that. And the problem is the drug, you heard what the doctor, what uh, James Harden said, about one woman in 10 ends up in the emergency room after taking this pill. Joy, doesn't it stun well, you? That in a, hold on, let me finish. Let me finish. In a country where we're so very concerned about health care and about recalls, about dangerous medical devices, dangerous pharmaceuticals, if there's a pill that one woman in 10 who takes it ends up in the emergency room, does that sound like a pill that would that would enjoy FDA endorsement? But I think that, uh, again, I think some of the problem is that um, people are going to be misusing it more, which is going to lead to more um, um, bad side effects or reactions because they don't have access to the health care that well, they up need. Till, up, up until and a year ago, Joy, so can, abortion was generally available everywhere in America, and even today it's available in most places in America. So but, your argument it, fails but, on factual grounds, doesn't it? No, but the guidelines say 70 days. And so if someone... No, the guidelines say... The well, guidelines, yes, seven to ten well, weeks... I was just reading it. That the guidelines say 70 days. So if the, but if they don't have access to a, an OBGYN to go and see where their pregnancy is, I mean, you have ones in Idaho, they have to come into Spokane or other places. Well, hold on. Joy, Joy, a woman has been pregnant for 10 weeks and she hasn't gone to see a doctor at that point. She has access. They don't have them. They do not have them in Idaho. They're not available. They're leaving the state, and not and and they're small rural towns. My sister lives in a town of a thousand people, and they don't even have. They're they're trying to get midwives. My okay. niece works. Joy, at, uh, can uh, can I interrupt only but, because I like asking questions. I really like it when people answer my questions, and when they dodge them, I'm inclined to go I, back. I Does it make sense? Questions. Does it make? I I asked it explicitly twice. One. If the FDA has said you can have mifeprestone on the market and one woman in 10 who takes it ends up in the emergency room, what, you know, most of them live, but some of them die, does that sound like a drug that deserves FDA approval? A drug that puts one well, woman would, in 10 in like the emergency room? where that one in 10 comes. It's, if that's because they're going beyond what the recommended use of it is or not well except that what no but what you're saying is they're 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 using it even in states that have plenty of OBGYNs. i mean joy you live in california i live in the state of washington washington is abortion up to the very last second before the baby is born there are tons of OBGYNs. there are abortion clinics sadly they've got all the access in the world and they still use the chemical abortion because it's more available and because it's cheaper and americans like cheap so you can't use that argument when it when the same pill is being used in states that have lots of abortion clinics, lots of OBGYNs. And, and so I'm asking you, should the, fe- we the don't federal... Know where the one, we don't know where the one in 10 is coming from. I mean, it well, may I'll be I'll tell you what, I'll look up the studies for you, but they've done, they've, done me- they've done medical studies, and they've determined that w- when one in 10 of the women who take this 
ends up in the emergency room. Now, if you want me to back that up, I'll back it up. I'm not a medical doctor. But, Joy, doesn't that sound like a disturbing level of complications from a drug? I take, I take uh, uh, metformin for my diabetes. Metformin doesn't send anybody to the emergency room. So if you had a drug that's being used a million times, well, sorry, 500,000 times a year in America, and one in 10 of those women ends up with complications severe enough that she goes to the emergency room, does that sound like a drug that should be on the market in America? It's really hard for me to answer that question. If you've got, <laughs> a, let's say, if, no, well, because you don't know where that 10% is coming from. If the 10% that is having problems are within rural communities, poor communities who do not have access to health care, then that is something that has to be improved. So that is not. And how do you do that? Because, Joy, but hold on, Joy, you're talking about an. an, an you're, no, let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. You're talking about a presidential administration that wants to make this drug as widely available as possible with as little medical oversight as possible. So when you say, well, you have to fix this problem of access to doctors, Biden wants to put the pill out there. And if you're saying the problem is lack of access to doctors, there will still be a lack of access to doctors after Joe Biden makes it possible for women to get this pill anytime, anywhere, without any medical supervision at all. And that doesn't make sense, does it? Well, it, I, again, I, I probably am ignorant on, on all the details of this, but... Probably. For, yeah, well, I, I'm, you know, I'm not as dumb as many people I'm not think saying you're that. dumb. I'm, I'm just saying I think your, ideolo- <laughs> but, your ideology is one that says I need to support abortion without regard to the consequences, and that is no, stunning. No, that... No, I no. I think my comment was more that that some of the policies that are being taken by states to eliminate any abortion. I mean, I'm one well, of those. I'll, I'll tell you what you wanted. You wanted a you wanted you wanted a study. I'll give you a study from it was from September of 2000 to February of 2019. So, in other words, prior to the Dobbs decision. Prior to the Dobbs decision, I'll put the link up. We may even end up talking about it tomorrow. Joy, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Solid advice from Senator John Kennedy. Look, if you hate cops just because of the cops, the next time you get in trouble, call a crackhead. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you with me. I'll get back to your calls when we get a moment, but uh, I want to talk to Tim Murtaugh. Now, Tim's last uh, day, well, he has a current day job, but he's the former communications director for the president I plan to vote for next year, and that's Donald Trump. But I want you to imagine a story that begins in jail. And it ends four years later with a young man on Air Force One, and that is Tim Murtaugh. Mr. Murtaugh, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Lars. How have you been? 
I've been very well, and it sounds like Donald Trump has been very, very good for Tim Murtaugh, and you tell the story in this new book called Swing Hard in Case You Hit It, My Escape from Addiction and Shot at Redemption on the Trump Campaign. How did this all come about? Well, I, I surely do owe Donald Trump an awful lot. I mean, he kind of uh, plucked me from obscurity, I guess you would say. I was I was a career communicator and done public relations for lots of different uh, campaigns and politicians in Virginia and across the country. And I was working in Congress and ended up getting a job in his administration for Secretary Sonny Perdue. And then subsequently, I, I guess I performed well and I found my way onto the Trump campaign. And, and uh, he named me as communications director for his uh, reelection effort in, in 2020. We all know what an unusual and crazy year that was. And oh, yeah. it was an incredible experience. And, and it would not really it would not have happened if I had not been able to put down the bottle uh, in 2015 after when, you know, I had had a problem for a long, long, long time. And I woke up in jail one day in Fairfax County, Virginia in 2015, and I was staring at some really, really serious legal troubles. And I knew that I had to get my stuff together uh, or I was going to be in, in serious, serious trouble. And luckily I did. I uh, managed to keep it between the lines. And, and Donald Trump uh, put me on the map, really, as far as my career goes in, uh, in political communications. I'll be eternally grateful and uh, I, I hope people read the book. It's, I think it's I think it's a good redemption story. It's got a lot of bad things in there that I'm not particularly proud of, uh, but uh, I, I think it's a good story. And I, and I hope that it helps other people who might be struggling the same way that I struggled, because it was always helpful to me to read about things that other people went through. Well, Tim, one of the reasons I think I haven't had an alcohol problem or any other addiction problem is I grew up as the as the child of an alcoholic. My dad never did find his way out of the Bible or out of the bottle. Uh, he should have found his way to the Bible, uh, but he uh, but he was a functioning alcoholic. You know, work all day, come home, drink himself into a stupor every single night. And as a kid, it was uh, it was it was a real trial. I mean, there was no abuse or anything like that. But it was like, hey, Dad, don't drink tonight. Okay, tomorrow night I'll do better. And, and you know, I just got to the point where I never believed uh, the, the claims of alcoholics anymore. But thank, thank God you had your family and your wife who stuck with you through this trial. Yeah, I really did. And I am very fortunate in that. And, and I'm, my father was an alcoholic, too. He quit drinking when I was in college, when I was a freshman in college. And I never, honestly, I never really noticed that much that he had a serious problem. I, I was not aware of the depth of his problems, and he went to rehab and, and never, never looked back, never drank again. And I was, yes, I was able to get through it with the, with the help of my family and my wife, and we weren't married for some of the time that I was doing this. And, and I, we have two children now, two little boys, ages five and seven, Good and I've been you. sober for eight, eight and a half years, and they have never seen their father take a drink. And uh, I'm that, I, and I hope they never do. But uh, as a, an alcoholic in recovery, I know that I am always just one drink away from spiraling out of control again. And that's part of the reason why I wrote this book is because, you know, writing it all down again helps me remember how ludicrous it all was. And it helps me stay sober and not pick up the bottle. And uh, like I said, I, I, help, I love to read other people's stories about how they made it through. And, and I hope somebody can pick up my book one day. And, uh, and it helps them stay sober for even another 10 minutes, you know. And, and the book is called Swing Hard in Case You Hit It, My Escape from Addiction and Shot at Redemption on the Trump Campaign. Tim, I end up researching a thousand different crazy things. Sometimes they end up on the show, sometimes they don't. But the other day, uh, I was in a debate with somebody, I think, uh, by email. And, uh, and I was stunned by the number. The number of people who die from excess alcohol every year in America is uh, it works out to about 300, I think it's 380 a day. 
And and I looked at that number and I thought that's that's stunning. And I thought, well, maybe there's a problem with the number. I, I checked. Nope. That's that's the, the number of deaths in America ex- uh, attributed to excess drinking. It's a terrible, terrible illness. I don't mind having an adult beverage now and then, but as I said, having had the experience of a kid uh, with an alcoholic dad, where it was very visible. I mean, he was he was in the bottle every single night, uh, usually the beer bottle. Uh, but I didn't want to end up that way myself, and my wife and I both watch to make sure she drinks very little. I occasionally have a glass of bourbon, but that's it. Uh, about once a week or maybe once every two weeks. It's r- literally that infrequent. But one of the things that's interesting about this to me, about your story, is you ended up working for Donald Trump, who's famously, you know, uh, averse to alcohol. How did that work out? Well, you know, I was working for Sonny Perdue, and he was the Secretary of Agriculture. I was, I was the communications director. And, and before he hired me, when I was sitting down to meeting with him for the first time, I told him, I said, look, and there's, uh, there's some stuff in my past. I have a couple of DUIs. I have a, a number of drunken public or public intoxication charges and, and convictions in Virginia and, and elsewhere. So you should know that. If somebody looks it up, they'll be able to find it. It's on public record. And he said, uh, well, are you drinking right now, today? And I said, no. And he said, well, okay, then. Then then we're fine. And then after two years, two years later, I was approached, and, and we I talked with the campaign, and Brad Parscale was the campaign manager at the time for President Trump, and I mm-hmm. told him the same thing before I was hired. And I said, you might want to run that past the president before you bring me on, because some of these opposition researchers, they'll find that in 10 minutes, and they'll try to use it against me to try to hurt the president. And he went and told the president that, and Brad came back with the news. He said the president says he's not concerned about it. He loves a good redemption story, and he <laughs> understands because he blames alcohol for taking the life of his brother. A friend. And uh, the, yeah. president, the president gave me uh, a chance to prove myself, uh, feel like I did. And, uh, you know, and, and I really am very, very grateful for that. It, they didn't have to give me that chance. It would have been a lot easier to say, nah, you know what, we just don't want to have to deal with negative press if anybody digs up your police record. And it would have been very easy for them to just pass and move on to the next guy, right? And then ultimately it did happen. The opposition researchers came and they tried to convince a whole bunch of reporters by dangling my police record in front of them and my two DUIs and the other charges and things and trying to get right to, trying to get them to write bad stories to hurt the president, write bad stories about me to hurt Trump. Thankfully, we were able to talk everybody out of doing those and talk and tell them about how re- irrelevant it was. I mean, what does it matter what I did eight years ago? You know, what, how does, why does that matter? And, uh, and we were able to get through it, but that's part of the reason, uh, aside from wanting to help people, I wanted to tell my own story to get it out there on my own terms so I could take the power away from these opposition researchers who just love to hurt people because they can score political points that way. Now they can't do that to me anymore, at least not, and, at least not that way. Anyway. And, and by the way, Tim, that's coming from the tolerance side of the crowd, you know, that's saying you have to be tolerant of people, except a guy who sat down, confessions good for the soul, tells his prospective boss, I've had an alcohol problem before, I'm on top of it now. Uh, I promise you I'm not going to be drinking. And President Trump says, good, then we're fine. You know, can you imagine the tolerance crowd trying to condemn a guy for hiring somebody who's actually told him what the score is and made sure that he did right by him? Tim Murtaugh, he's the author of Swing Hard In Case You Hit It. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. When it comes to health, we're all on our own. Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Lars. Real Red Meat Radio.
I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. There's no evidence to support the allegations that my father was financially involved in my business because it did not happen. Now, if you think you recognize that voice, you probably do. It's Hunter Biden. Yeah, the 'er ne'er-do-well son, coked up, or I guess he's now supposed to be a recovering addict, the son of the big guy, Joe Biden, currently residing at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Welcome to the Lars Larson Show. I want to talk about what happened today when Hunter Biden came to Capitol Hill, except he didn't come to actually answer, as he has to legally, to answer a subpoena from Congress to testify first behind closed closed doors, but on the record and then out in public. But first, welcome to the program. Glad to have you on board. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always happening right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you first in line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Oh, and you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that in a couple of places, Twitter or X at Lars Larson Show. Or you can also go to our website at LarsLarson.com. So, Today, the House Republicans had planned to put some tough questions on Hunter Biden, and they would do it behind closed doors for a start, but on the record, and prepare to question him in public about details of his illicit business deals in Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Moscow, and Beijing, China, and how those deals brought in more than $24 million to the Biden crime family and bank records that show some of that money went to big guy Joe Biden. He's called Hunter Biden the smartest guy he knows, but he's also said, I have never, ever talked to my son about his business, about what he does. I haven't been on the phone with his business partners. And today we know to a fair certainty that all of that is big, fat lies from Joe Biden. But why would that surprise anybody? Now, about the business of testifying behind closed doors. Now, Any of you have ever been involved in a lawsuit on either side of the lawsuit, you understand that one of the things you're going to do before you ever walk into the courtroom is you're going to have people deposed, deposed, and I've been deposed before. You sit in a room, you take an oath to tell the truth, and they put it on the record. Now, why do they ask you lots and lots and lots of questions and then put you on the stand in the trial where you may testify to a tenth of what you said in the deposition? because they want to get everybody's story down pat and say, okay, we understand the position that Hunter Biden has taken. Then, in this model, where the House Republicans, just as Democrats have done, Democrats had lots of behind-closed-doors depositions of witnesses to find out what the witness was going to say, to compare it to the evidence, to compare it to the testimony of other witnesses, and then put them in front of Congress and the public and ask them questions based on what you learned in the deposition. It makes perfect sense in civil trials. It even makes sense if you got depositions to a criminal trial. It makes sense in the case of testifying to Congress. Well, Hunter Biden was given a subpoena that is legally enforceable. And I'll tell you what the Congress has done. They have now decided to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress for failure to appear for that closed door testimony. He just simply refused 
to show up in that hearing. He said, I'll testify in public, but I'm not going to testify on you know, under oath uh, behind closed doors. Take a listen. He talks about, well, in effect, a mea culpa. I'm here today to acknowledge that I've made mistakes in my life and wasted opportunities and privileges I was afforded. Now, the thing is, we don't care about his mistakes. We don't care about his opportunities that he's missed out on. What I care about is, did Hunter Biden accept bribes on behalf of his dad from foreign companies and foreign countries, including China, Russia, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine? Did he do that? I believe that he did. He's not there to talk about his coke use or how many hookers he hired, sometimes with Joe Biden's money. He was there to testify about whether or not we have a president who is thoroughly compromised by bribes he's received from foreign governments and foreign companies. Now, I believe that that was true for a long, long time. Now we know that Congress has a lot of that uh, information in the form of bank records, text messages, phone calls, emails, the whole nine yards. Now, what does Daddy Joe, the big guy, say about those people who decide to defy a subpoena from Congress? Take a listen. What's your message to people who defy congressional subpoenas on the January 6th committee? I hope that the committee goes after them and uh, holds them accountable. Should they be prosecuted by the I, Justice I do, Department? yes. Now, he was asked about people subpoenaed to testify about January 6th. And what the president said at that point was... Those people should testify. If they don't testify, they should be prosecuted. Will Joe Biden hold his son to the same standard? Because Joe Biden has said all along, and he said as recently as a couple of weeks ago, that nothing, nothing that Hunter Biden did was wrong. Now, of course, you have to couple that with the fact that Papa Joe, uh, the big guy, claims that he knows nothing about Hunter Biden's business, but at the same time says whatever his business was, it was all above board, it was all legal, and it was kosher. No, you know, you can't claim both. You can't claim I don't know anything about my son's business affairs, even though they very much involved Joe, because what Hunter was selling was Joe Biden's influence, Joe Biden's name, and he can't say I don't know anything about it, but whatever he did, it was probably legal. Now, about Hunter Biden and his decision to defy the subpoena. Listen to this. I'm here today to make sure that the House Committee's illegitimate investigations of my family do not proceed on distortions, manipulated evidence, and lies. Well, that's a bit of a contradiction because when Hunter Biden says, I want to make sure it's not on distortions and lies, and then says, but I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be I give my testimony under oath on the record in front of members of Congress in those closed door sessions. Well, if you don't want it to be lies and distortions, then straighten us out. Tell us what it was you were doing. And then you have to consider Mike Johnson, the current Speaker of the House, has said this impeachment is not going to be like the impeachments, two of them, of Donald Trump. There shouldn't be any such thing as a snap impeachment, a sham impeachment like the Democrats did against President Trump. This is the opposite of that. Now. In the meantime, what are the Democrats doing? The Democrats are in full denial mode. Joe Biden's Capitol Hill defenders have decided to adopt the strategy of simply denying that the evidence exists. Well, tell you what, Tony Bobolinsky, Hunter's former business partner, who testified that Joe Biden was the big guy, set to get 10% cut 
in that Chinese energy venture. Devin Archer, Hunter's former business partner and friend, says Hunter put then-Vice President Joe Biden on the phone during meetings with foreign associates around two dozen times, all in an effort to, as Devin Archer put it, sell the Biden brand. And Archer even admitted that the arrangement was an abuse of power on the part of Vice President Joe Biden. But AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, listen. That not only is the committee not allowing Hunter Biden to testify publicly, but they have not called a single witness, a single first-hand witness to any of their allegations. They haven't allowed anybody to testify publicly because they do not have a single Well, witness. except for Tony Bobulinski and Devin Archer and a number of others and a stack of bank records and emails and phone calls and text messages. You got the Lars Larson Show. Another strong take from President Biden on AI and the weather. Helping the web, tech, the, web, web, the web telescope. My God, what is this? This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. Or you can go to my website. The vote counts the same at LarsLarson.com. And you can send an email to talk at LarsLarson.com. And I'm glad to see what's happening to Joe Biden's crazy electric vehicle mandate. Already, customers are not buying the cars, or at least not in sufficient numbers, to consume the inventory. And now some of the car companies have said, we're, we're not going to be producing EVs the way Joe Biden wants us to. In fact, Ford Motor Company, uh, late last week or early this week, announced it is cutting production of its signature F-150 Lightning pickup truck, the one that runs on batteries. They're cutting production in half. And believe me, no car company stops making cars that it can readily sell. The problem is the car industry is losing tens of thousands of dollars on every single car, EV car that they make and sell because they're selling them for less than they cost to make, which makes no sense, even with the federal subsidy calculated in. So I thought we'd ask uh, Ver our friend Veronique de Rougie, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center, economist and George Mason University. Uh, Veronique, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Lars. I want to get your take on, on what's happening here, because it seems the president's mandates have met, met economic reality and consumer choice, and it's not a happy meeting. No, it's, it's not a happy meeting. And with also the cost uh, that it's, uh, or the mandate to shift to electric cars, the companies are having a lot of trouble with unions, because unions understand that building an EV requires much fewer union workers. And this is, uh, and, and, and in particular, when the companies, the, the car companies building EVs are relocating in uh, right-to-work uh, states, which is smart. I mean, they should be doing this. So 
they're facing, uh, first, it's important to understand that for, for the most part, car companies are subsidizing their EV production with the, uh, the, the, their regular cars, right? Yep. But now, with the trouble that they have with the unions and the negotiation and the, the deal they've ha- just have to make to actually keep their unions going, the cost of making regular cars is going to go up. So it's just not it's just not a good uh, it's not a good uh, it's not a good recipe. The other thing that's worth uh, uh, understanding is the fact that there's so much you can subsidize. First, I mean the money doesn't fall from the sky, right? I mean it right. has a cost in the real economy, but it's also the reason why people are not demanding EVs uh, as much as the government would like us to uh, to to desire is uh, like. Would, would like us to to buy is because it's just not a good deal. Even with the subsidies, <laughs> they're more expensive. They cost more to maintain. They're very high maintenance, right? Because when you take a trip, you are never sure that you're going to be able to find somewhere to plug it. It's going to take a long time if you can. Very often, people report that when you show up at a station, there's either a big line or the plugs are not working, and so there's just they're they're very though they are great cars. I have friends who have EVs; they absolutely love their cars. Um, they're very high maintenance, and so yeah, high maintenance in the in the sense that you've got to recharge it, and then when you take off on a trip, anything more than daily driving. If you take a trip of more than a couple hundred miles, you have to say, where are we going to charge it? Where's the fuel exactly. for this electric vehicle? And, and, and if the fueling stations aren't there, and even if they are, they take a lot of time. And by the way, uh, I read yesterday that uh, for all the billions of dollars that the federal government has paid in subsidies to buy stations, plugging stations, they've yep. only managed to build one. Is that <laughs> is that, is that correct? No. Did I read that? I mean, you I know what? No, Veronique, I, I saw the same report, except it was a week ago. And as of a week ago, they hadn't built any of them. And it's been two years since they allocated the money, and it was seven and a half billion dollars. And they, you know, th- so they began this effort I, a couple I, of years I think ago. They built one. I think they so, looked, 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 and they found one. And and this is this is the thing. It's like the the problem is like if you don't know where to plug it, right? And yep. or if you don't, if you if there's a risk that you're going to show up at a station that's going to be super crowded, so you're going to spend have to wait an hour to. Because it, unless you have a, you're at a super fast plugging station, um, it takes a long time. But that's one thing. The problem is when you're at a station and they're actually the charger is broken, which is another thing that people report. And finally, it's worth noting the incoherence. And I think you and I have talked about this in the past. The incoherence and the inconsistency of uh, the, uh, the the green ma- those green mandates. On one hand, they want everyone to switch to electric cars, even though electric cars are more expensive and have all the troubles uh, you and I just talked about. But it's right. also that they won't allow us to import electric cars for, for China. Whatever one thinks of, of importing things from China, some people are poor, some poor, for, some people are against, right? You can't have it both ways. China no, because, but, but what happens when you're a politician like Joe Biden and you say, I got to keep my union buddies happy. But if I OK importing electric cars from China, then then that undercuts my union buddies. Not only that, but back to your point about the number of workers it takes to build a car. 
I was stunned by the numbers, and if you've heard different ones, let me know. But as I understand it, for every 100 workers you need to build a given amount of, of conventional cars, you need about 60, six zero workers yes. to build the, the comparable EV. That's the number, right? So yes. that means yes. that at the UAW a Union Hiring Hall, you can look around and say if there are 100 guys in this hall, 40 of them are going to be jobless when Joe Biden's battery car dream comes to fruition. Yeah, and by the way, um, the other thing about China is, like, they produce cars that apparently some of them are actually really great. I mean, again, I'm not, you know, I, there, there, are, there are reasons you have some reservations about China. But also the cost, they can produce uh, very decent EVs for $11,000. So they have to decide. Because ours, like I think, the cheapest we have is 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 over twenty thousand, and so you've got to decide: do you want to put everyone in an EV, or do you want to, or do you not want to? I would rather they not want to, and they let the the, the transition happen naturally, because I think there is there, there is a I think the future is eventually going to be um, going to be most cars at the very least on the roads um, that are not that are Ma- maybe that eventually are, that are. but right now until they make sense the yeah. last one i want you to address cuz you know what you've talked about is the tax problem because you're not yeah. buying gasoline so you're not paying gas taxes state or federal gas taxes yeah. and yet I, I I did a rough estimate of what I pay per car in the Larson family, and we don't do a gigantic amount of driving, nor do we, uh, you know, we do drive our cars. So it's five to four to six hundred dollars a year in a two car family. That's a thousand to twelve hundred dollars. But the EV family isn't paying that, and they're going to have to figure yep. out a way because that pays the roads, and the EVs aren't paying for the roads. How's that going to work out when you tell people? <clears throat> we want Ford to build you a car that costs more to build than they sell it to you for. Then we want to put a federal subsidy on it. Oh, and by the way, four or $500 in extra taxes to pay for the roads. Yeah, because they're not going to, they're not going to be paying. So there are a lot of problems with the gas tax as, as it is. But yes, all these electric cars are not going to be paying the, the gas tax. And so how are we going to be paying for this? This is a conversation we should have had a long time ago because it's been years, years uh, since the gas tax has been able to actually pay for all the infrastructure, infrastructure spending, including the repair of roads. Um, and so uh, they're not really thinking about this. Not, not, they had a pilot program, uh, which I have no idea whether they even implemented in the last, Veronique, I'm going to have to break it off at that point. That's Veronique DeRougie from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. All men and the people who love them. The 
upcoming American elections promise some provocative politics, but be forewarned, the green agenda may lead to some extreme rhetoric. Die, gas pumper! So prepare yourself by listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get back to your phone calls and emails in a moment, but there's a real mystery going on. And for me, maybe I'm just uh, stupid or naive or something. Maybe Jay Green can answer my question. How it is that so many people at major American universities can defend anti-Semitic comments and anti-Semitic attacks on their campus. Uh, And and some of them have kind of changed their tune once their jobs are threatened. Uh, But it seems strange to me that all of this is going on on American college campuses that are supposed to be full largely of young, woke, and so, so tolerant people who are college students these days. Jay, welcome back to the program. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me on. Jay Green is a senior answer for you. Oh, you do. Well, then I want to get to that. I was going to tell people you're a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy. Uh, But but tell me this. How how is it all these things are happening on college campuses? The the presidents of those universities who make huge salaries uh, defend them in front of Congress. Some of them backtrack quickly within a day or so. Uh, One has lost a job. The other one kept her job. uh, And they've lost literally billions of dollars in donations from big donors. And and they're not doing anything to control what their students are are saying. Right. So, I mean, I think the, the quick answer is you have to be really smart to be this dumb. Um, and, you know, it takes a lot of very advanced education to believe some really horrific things. And unfortunately, our universities are teaching our young people some horrific things. And, and one of the main theories that they're teaching our kids, which is leading them not only to hate Jews, but frankly, to hate our country, um, is that the world can be divided into oppressors and oppressed. That is, rather than treating everyone as an individual, equally made in the image of God, deserving of equal treatment under the law, instead we think that people belong in different categories and deserve different treatment because of the category they're in. If they're an oppressor, they deserve the harsh treatment they receive, and if they're oppressed, they deserve reparations for the collective and historic wrongs they've experienced. And it's that nonsensical idea that very smart people have whipped themselves up into believing, and that has led to uh, this wave of anti-Semitism we're seeing on campus, but frankly, it's just a manifestation, really, of a hatred for the fundamental values of our country, um, namely a belief in equal treatment under the law. Jay, I think you're right, but but tell me this. Isn't this, you know, this whole movement on that side, which I disagree with all day long, but isn't it like to, likely to collide with itself? In other words, what do you do, let's say, with somebody who's Jewish, but they're also black and gay? I mean, do you have to go to a flow chart and figure out, are they more oppressor or oppressed in that case? And who do I, do I yell at them or do I slap them on the back and congratulate them? Yeah, you know, it's kind of hilarious, actually, that, that, that once you abandon a consistent principle like equal treatment under the law, you are left inevitably with these paradoxes where you don't know whether you're supposed to uh, give people reparations or uh, strip them of their privileges. And, and so once we abandon this, this kind of clean and, and very clear principle of equal treatment, then if we decide that people deserve differential treatment, not based on anything they've done individually, but based on the group that they belong to or who they are as, as a member of a group, then 
people are members of multiple groups, and we don't know which group is the one that deserves priority in, in determining how they're treated. You're right. It leads to nonsense and contradictions, uh, but luckily they um, don't have to resolve them because they don't have to make sense. Um, so, so that's how we're left with this kind of horrible mess. But it's, I think it's becoming very clear to a wider group of Americans that there's something deeply wrong in our universities and that they've strayed from their central mission of truth-seeking and have gone into this, this uh, alternative mission of political indoctrination. So what are, how are the universities then going to... Uh, I kind of wanted to get to some of what the president said when they showed up, the presidents from Harvard, Penn, and MIT. So they show up in front of that House sure. committee, and they say, and they're asked, if somebody comes out and calls for genocide against Jewish people, uh, is that okay with you? Or are you going to, you know, stop that? And they're gen- the the answer I think of all three could be summed up. Le- I mean, honestly, I'm not trying to diminish what they said, but they said, "Oh no, until they actually act on it and go out and actually attack somebody, no, there's nothing we can do about speech." Except the universities have had decades of acting against speech that was out of line. Going all the way back, I mean, a long time, but the one that kind of jumps to mind was about 30 years ago, the, the water buffalo uh, incident where a student, um, sure. who I think was actually Jewish, you know, if that matters or not, but he was studying in his room and these uh, sorority sisters were outside and they were being loud and rowdy and distracting him. And, and they happened to be black Americans and, and he shouted at them, you know, shut up, you water buffalo. And uh, and and he was almost pushed out of school. He survived. But but they said, you can't talk that way. And at the time, the question was, well, he was rude and crude and out of line. But are you going to kick him out of school for that? Except now the same universities are turning around saying, oh, no, you can run around calling for genocide, calling for, you know, support for terrorism and everything else. And that's perfectly OK unless you actually hit somebody. Right. They, you've described them accurately. They said that when speech turns into action, then it can be punished. And so they've adopted this uh, absolutist free speech doctrine um, all of a sudden. Um, at, at the prior moment, they did not believe it. Um, and they didn't do it, as you note with an example from a couple decades ago. But frankly, just a few months ago, they um, were uh, refusing to have speakers on campus if they said things that were politically unpopular. Um, They had revoked admissions for decisions, for uh, admissions decisions for students who had been admitted. But then something was discovered in their social media feed that was thought to be politically incorrect. And then they revoked their admission. So they, they were punishing students, punishing faculty. Uh, Claudine Gay went after um, uh, black scholars, accomplished black scholars, Roland Fire and Ronald Sullivan. Um, uh, Ronald Sullivan for representing Harvey Weinstein, engaging in actual just legal defense of a client. Um, so none of these people were consistent uh, believers in absolute free speech prior to the moment that Jews were the ones who were being victimized. And that, um, now, that really sticks out like a sore thumb. So, Jay, give me a prediction of where you think this is going to go, because we've had one university president lose her job, uh, another managed to survive, Ms. Uh, president Gay at Harvard. Uh, and Harvard has lost at least a billion dollars in donations. Other universities are suffering that as well from their big donors who say, hey, if that's what you're going to stand up for, you're not getting a dime of my money. Where is this all going to lead? So uh, 
It's going to be a bit of a battle here. It's going to stretch out. But I think Claudine Gay will ultimately not survive this. But the thing that will get her is not her horrible treatment of Jewish students, um, but uh, will be her plagiarism. Um, so uh, Chris Rufo and Aaron Sperium, two journalists, have documented numerous instances of, of plagiarism in her rather sparse academic scholarship. Um, and they're finding more every day. And I think that will accumulate to the point where the university will have a hard time keeping her. See? Um, hmm. But, yeah, but they don't want to give in. Uh, these universities don't want to give in to outside influence uh, because they see that as them losing control of their own narrative, their own weird little world they've created. Well, and see, what makes me uncomfortable about it is that then gives them an excuse. We're, we're firing President Gay for her, for her plagiarism and not for her absolutely indefensible, uh, you know, refusal, uh, to go after, you know, to, to apply the same standards on speech from one group as she'd apply to another group. Uh, Jay, keep up the good work at Heritage and we appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. You bet. That's Jay Green, who's a senior research fellow in the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your call at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Team Kissin on Hamas. For years now, many of us have been warning that the barbarians are at the gates. We were wrong. They're inside. There are positives as well. I mean, say what you want about Hamas supporters. At least they know what a woman is. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I think parents have every reason to be concerned about the kind of claptrap and the indoctrination that their kids are going to face when they go to a government-run so-called public school. And I'm going to tell you why the latest example will show you just how far out of the lane the teachers, some teachers, not all, are willing to go in order to indoctrinate kids about sexual matters, even when they're teaching a class that has absolutely positively nothing to do with the subject they're trying to indoctrinate. But let me get to that in a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it happens right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer, if you disagree with my point of view, I'm more than happy to put you right to the head of the line. For more than a quarter century, this program has always put naysayers to the head of the line. So you're welcome at 866-439-5277. If you want to send an email, we make that easy. Talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, we put up a brand new question. And I say we because some days I write the question. Some days my brilliant producers, all three of them, Joel and Mackenzie and Donovan, they write the questions as well. So we work on it as a team. Uh, so if you want to vote, it's at Lars Larson Show on X or Twitter. You can also go to our website at LarsLarson.com and vote there. But please just vote once. But imagine this. I want you to imagine, and I'll rely on the reporting of the New York Post, you're sending your kid to school, high school in this case, so more mature kids than, say, middle school or elementary school. And your child comes home and says, you're not going to believe what happened to me in history class today. And uh, 
And, and mom or dad says, well, what happened? Well, I got marked down because I failed on a couple of the questions in a true-false quiz in ethnic studies world history class. And in this case, the student at Chief Seattle uh, International High School or Chief Self uh, International High School told his mom, said, look, this is what happened to me at school, mom. The student got marked down for two statements that he had la- that he had marked as true. It's a true-false quiz given out in his class, Ethnic Studies World History. And here were the two statements that he marked true. One, all men have penises. And by the way, before any of the grammar critics out there get started, I thought maybe the uh, plural of penises, never had to use the plural before, uh, was peni. It's not, it's penises. And the second one, that only women can get pregnant. He marked that true. And he, he was told he was wrong. He was absolutely wrong. Now, what happened? In this class, he was marked incorrect for both of those and failed the knowledge check quiz as a result because he failed on those two questions. Other questions on the quiz, this was given about two weeks ago, according to the New York Post, asked students about pronoun usage and gender as a construct. Now, I would ask you this. When do you first recall hearing that so-called gender fluidity or transgender issues became any kind of major factor in world history? If you say less than 10 years ago, I'd agree with you. If you said mostly in the last five years, I'd completely agree with you there. So you're teaching us a, a, a class in world history, ethnic studies and world history, and all of a sudden you're being asked about penises and who can get pregnant. The other questions ask students about pronoun usage and uh, and gender as a construct. Now, that's where it gets really crazy. And I know that some of you are going to say, Lars, if they'd been teaching a class on current events, maybe those questions would have been appropriate. But in this case, they weren't teaching current events. They were teaching ethnic studies, world history. How does that have anything to do with that? Well, I want you to understand that. There are teachers out there who go to school and they teach their kids and they teach the subject that they've been told to teach, whether it's math, whether it's science, whether it's history or any of those other issues. And then there are teachers and I don't think they belong in any school, let alone the public schools, who've decided that they have a platform to push their own personal, and in this case, sexual agenda. According to the way this was uh, graded by his teacher, he should have answered to the question, all men have penises. He should have said, that's false. And on the question, only women can get pregnant, according to the teacher, This student at a high school, the International High School, uh, Chief Self uh, International High School in Seattle, he should have marked that false. No, there are men out there who get pregnant as well. And there are men out there who don't have a penis. And we're not talking about medical accidents or anything like that. We know what they're getting at. What they're saying is there are men who are pretending to be women who literally, I don't know if you've seen this or not, but there there are men who pretend that they have a monthly period. There are men who pretend that they need a pap smear. There are men who pretend that they can get pregnant at some point. Now, what do the schools say about this? According to the New York Post, Seattle Public Schools say the quiz was meant to promote inclusion 
and was in line with lessons taught in the ethnic studies class. Is, uh, is being transgender an ethnicity now? Because I'd, I'd never heard that, and I'm trying to wrap my head around how uh, being transgender, believing that you are a female, even though you have the biological parts of a male, makes you part of a different ethnicity. A course description says that students will be, quote, investigating the global economy, society, and culture. And I'm sure that this is where the teacher said, there's my in. I can fit this in under the rubric of culture. I can say that, you know, transgender people, gender fluid people, if you will, are part of a culture. And then here's the statement from the uh, from the Seattle Public Schools. We remain committed to fostering inclusive environments that encourage the exploration of contemporary issues, particularly the examination of power systems such as racism and patriarchy. This dedication extends to providing a space for thoughtful exploration and dialogue on these issues. Can you imagine? What would happen if I were a student in that high school? I'm a, I'm a half century past high school. But can you imagine a student who says, hey, these men who say they're pregnant, because I wanted to get that, uh, that question right on the pop quiz, how exactly do they get pregnant? And how exactly do they bear a child? And then on the other question, all men have penises. How exactly is it that somebody who was born with female body parts ends up with a penis? Uh, and that she is then considered a man. Now, you know they're not going to be open to that kind of discussion. So all this promise about inclusivity and everything else, what you've got is indoctrination. You either toe the party line when it comes to LGBTQ, or you're going to get bad grades, not just in college, but in high school as well. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show, and check me out on The Lars Larson Show. Daisy was abandoned by her.